morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? So good to be in the house of the Lord together today. I'm excited. This is a day that I've prayed about for so long. Um, my kids are two of the kids that are going to be uh, getting baptized today, and I can't tell you how excited I am about that, about what God is doing in their lives, and um, just to hear their testimony. Uh, also, my other family, my church family, these kids are just such a joy to watch grow up and uh, to see how the Lord is working in their life. Uh, and I have the double blessing of getting to preach today. I'm not an elder here at Connection, um, but Pastor David and Pastor Eric have graciously given me the prime cut of the book of Zechariah. I get to preach uh, Zechariah chapter 3 today, and I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to have my family here uh, to support me, and uh, so many awesome guests. Thank you all so much for coming to support your family. I know you didn't come to hear me preach, but you're going to get it anyways, okay? <laughs> so I don't have to tell most of you that I'm not a professional preacher. I'm an engineer, okay? That means I'm qualified to drive trains. I'm pretty good at Minesweeper. And apparently it makes me qualified to fix any IT problems that anybody has. So that doesn't really lend much credence to my capability as a, a preacher, so I wanted to set everybody's mind at ease here at the beginning and uh, share some of my credentials with you to show you how qualified I am. Okay. Anybody know what this is? Dirty diapers. This is my righteousness. This is my, my portfolio of all of my best work. So I wanted to share with you guys some of the great things about me that make me an awesome preacher for you this morning, okay? If I can get it open, I haven't handled one of these in a few years. All right, so first of all, I have a profound vocabulary, okay? I don't know if you guys can see the slide up there. Um, I've been pouring over at thesaurus.com to make sure I'm using some fancy vocabulary for you guys today, all right? I uh, have studied the Hebrew words of a lot of the, uh, the, the words in the scripture here today, and I've even learned how to pronounce um, with the proper phlegm in the right places, like Zechariah, okay? Um, I've even tried to really make my points very witty, to uh, alliterate them, to make them punny, okay? I've carefully um, refined and, and crafted this message for you guys this morning. But more importantly, my character, okay? I want you guys to know what a great person I am. Um, for instance, I'm here at church every time the doors are open. Um, I never miss, so that makes me a pretty awesome Christian, right? Also, I don't know if you guys know this, but I also lead worship sometimes at our church. And... Um, more importantly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a really good person. I, uh, I don't sin very much. I don't do a lot of bad things. You know, I don't drink or smoke or cuss. I might have a few small sins here or there, but it's probably nothing you guys would even notice, right? That's, this is my righteousness. And today, I want to talk about this guy named uh, Joshua and talk about his righteousness, okay? I want you to know that even though... We bring to God our best, our righteousness. It's like a sack of dirty diapers. That's what Zechariah had. But we serve a God who can take our dirty diapers and turn them into diadems. 
Okay? That's just a fancy word for crowns. That's what the, the hymn writers used to call a crown. And the Bible says that we're one day going to cast all of our crowns at Jesus' feet. And it's all for his glory. He takes our unrighteousness and gives us his righteousness. So today, my, my sermon is called The Purification of the Priest. And we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3. So if you don't mind standing with me, we're going to read the word of God together. In Zechariah, or Zechariah, chapter 3, it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. And they clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before me, For they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. You may be seated. Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning to come together and to open your word, to be encouraged of the truths therein. Thank you for all of the visitors that we have, for the love that we poured out on these children who have given their hearts and lives to you. Lord, would you be glorified in this service, overcome me, my inadequacies, my unrighteousness, and would you speak directly to your people through your word this morning. We ask it in the high and holy name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So, Uh, We've been studying the book of Zechariah for the past few weeks, and um, for those of you who haven't been with us, uh, just to catch you up very quickly, um, we're studying about this period of time whenever the Israelites were taken into exile by the Babylonians, and who were later conquered by the Persians, and then a king of the Persians sent some of the the Israelites back to start rebuilding the, the city of Jerusalem and the temple therein. The sermon series is called Zechariah Rebuilt Hearts and Restored Hopes. And the point of this is that Zechariah was trying to encourage the people to turn away from their sin, their defilement, and get back to building their hearts on this hope of this messianic kingdom that was to come. The first five and a half chapters of the book are filled with all of these strange uh, visions. But all of those visions point to this idea that God, through his grace, is doing something amazing to redeem his people. 
We've talked about several times in the last few weeks how this section of the book is structured in what we call a chiasm. And that's just a fancy word for a, a pattern that the Israelites, that, that Hebrew culture would often uh, form their arguments into where they all point back to a central argument. Okay, I've got a, a short diagram here to show you kind of what I'm talking about. We've tar- talked through the, the first and the eighth, the second and the seventh, the third and the fourth visions together. But now we've made it to the central point of this section of the, the book. And it's all about God's grace. Today I'm going to be talking about the fourth vision. And I've titled it um, The Purification of the Priest. And it's going to be all about the gospel. The gospel in the Old Testament. The gospel is the good news that makes clear to us that it's not by our works. It's not by our righteousness. It's by God's work alone that we're able to accomplish this great work that he's called us to. So our story starts with a new character that we're introduced to named Joshua. Okay? This isn't Joshua, the protege of Moses, that brought the people into the promised land. This is a new guy. His name is Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Jehozadak was the last high priest in Israel before the exile. Okay? That makes Joshua the next guy in line to be high priest. By the way, his name Joshua is pronounced in the Hebrew as Yehoshua. And the name Jesus, by the way, is the Greek transliteration of the shortened version of that name, Yeshua. Okay? So all that to say there's a link being formed here between Joshua and Jesus. And you'll see that throughout this uh, section of the scripture. So about this title of the high priest, the high priest was the one person on earth who had a responsibility for making an atonement for the sins of himself and the people of Israel. And they did that on one day of the year called uh, the Day of Atonement, or also called Yom Kippur. And interestingly enough, this year Yom Kippur falls one week from today, all right, on September 24th. Um, this past Friday was Rosh Hashanah. If you have any Jewish friends, that's the Jewish New Year. That makes this the holy week um, for, for the Israelites or for Jewish people, all culminating on this Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the 10th day of this festival, the high priest would go through this ritual that's outlined in Leviticus chapter 16, where he would clean himself up, he would put on fresh garments, and he would uh, sacrifice a bull, and he would take the blood of that bull, and he would go into the temple, into this inner room called the Holy of Holies, okay? This section of the, the temple was sectioned off with a big veil, a big curtain, and inside was the Ark of the Covenant, or the mercy seat, and the high priest had to go into this section and sprinkle the blood of the bull on the the mercy seat. He was the only person that was allowed to go in there. In fact, he had to wear a rope around his foot so that if he messed up and did something wrong and God struck him dead for his uncleanliness, they could yank him out by the rope, right? They put bells on the hems of his robes so that they could hear him tinkling around to know that he's still okay. So needless to say, this was a serious business. This was not something that you could do lightly, and I feel bad for this guy, Joshua, because he has never even seen the temple, right? He was born in exile. His father died while they were in exile, and he has to hold up the nation of Israel with uh, this ritual here. So he had to be nervous as a tick. I think he would probably rather baptize a bobcat than to go in there and do that. But Jesus is going to teach him himself and prepare him for the job. 
So you also see in this story this character called the angel of the Lord. And when you see that in the Old Testament, I want you to think about Jesus. Jesus does appear in the Old Testament. He often goes by the name the angel of the Lord. And we find him in several places throughout the Old Testament. He, he speaks to Abraham and he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac. He shows up for Moses in the burning bush and in several other places. Uh, and this is Jesus showing up in the Old Testament uh, to kind of direct the streams of history uh, for God's redemptive purposes. You say, well, how do you know this is Jesus and not just some unnamed angel? Well, for one thing, he is effectively forgiving sin in this chapter, and God alone can forgive sin. So we have Jesus, we have Joshua, and we have this guy, uh, Satan. We've all heard of Satan or Satan. Yeah, boo, absolutely. He's been showing up doing the same thing since the Garden of Eden. He's here to accuse the brethren. He's here to lay out a case against Joshua and prove to God why Joshua is incapable and should be damned instead of going and serving uh, his nation in such a way. So I want to read from uh, the first three verses here and kind of start picking apart uh, this story that we've got. In verse 3, it says, Then he showed me, uh, me here being Zechariah, he's the one that's seeing this vision, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, a.k.a. Jesus, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So we see here in these first three verses that we have a real problem. Joshua is the best man that Israel could put forward to come and represent them before God. And he shows up for this job interview, a hot mess. He has filthy garments. And the word filthy here is not very um, adequate. This word in Hebrew has the depiction that he was covered in excrement. Okay, To put it bluntly, he had poop on him. He came to a job interview in his poop suit. Clothes always represented your character in the Hebrew mind. And this is a way of saying that Joshua was unfit for this job. He was stained. The job required pure vestments. But Joshua shows up with the only righteousness that he had. That's what this is. That's the only righteousness that any of us have. We are all filthy without Christ. He was stained by his presence with uh, the pagans. He was born in exile. He was culturally part of this uh, pagan empire. And the only way for the people to atone for their sin back there was through this process that the high priest was supposed to go through. But it had been 70 years before, uh, since that had happened. And now he was covered in this filth. The Bible says that in, in Isaiah 64, it says, but we are all as an unclean thing and all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We're no better than Joshua. The word filthy in that, that context has the connotation of used menstrual cloths. If you're getting the picture here, we don't have a lot to bring to the table. We can't hide our dirty laundry from God. We have no hope. Joshua is standing here in front of 
Jesus and in front of this uh, fallen angel called Satan, and Satan is just salivating, ready to pick him apart, rip him to shreds. That dastardly old devil, he has an airtight case, and it's not like Joshua has any hope of refuting it. I mean, he showed up with the evidence on him. This would be like if an accused murderer came to court wearing a creepy hockey mask and, and bloody nunchucks in his hand. You know, he doesn't stand a chance of defending himself. Joshua has to be reeling in his mind, scrambling for some defense, but he's got to know that he's burnt toast. This is not going to go well for him. What a heartbreaking tragedy it would be to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment and our only defense is a sack of dirty diapers. You may be able to say the right things. You may have all of the morals that we mere mortals might aspire to. But if you've never come to grips with the inadequacy of your own righteousness and the stench of your own sin, then you have no defense to make. I think we have an epidemic in our culture, especially around here, of half-hearted believers who are standing on their own self-righteousness. And I say around here because I think everybody wants to identify with the people around them, right? And in our neck of the woods, you know, to be a good Powdersvillian or Piedmontonian or pick a night, it probably has something to do with being a conservative Christian, okay? At least outwardly, at least having the facade of that. And that's a good thing. But if it only goes skin deep, then it's really not a good thing. Of course, the paragon of Christian uh, Southern gentility has definitely changed over the years. It's not what it used to be. But for most people, it can still be daunting to stand out from that, that crowd. So a lot of people will assume a false facade, an outward facade of Christian Christianity without experiencing the radical rebirth that's required whenever we... we understand how God has died for us and given us a new life. We settle for religion rather than a personal relationship with the Savior. Church becomes a matter of social standing. Speaking Christianese is just a part of the local dialect. This is a dangerous thing for people um, that grow up in an area like this that we need to be mindful of. You know, people in other parts of the world probably don't face exactly the same problems because for them to stand up as a conservative Christian makes them a target, not a cliche. So we have to fight against this. I'm not saying that all Southern Christians are hypocrites. That's the last thing that I'm, I'm trying to point out. But I think that there's a lot of people that wear this threadbare cloak of self-righteousness and they think that they'll stand before God one day and God will accept them because they did the best that they could or because they have done enough good things to outweigh the bad things that they've done. And that's just not it. That's not the gospel. That will never work. We can't stand before God and pull out our sack of dirty diapers and say, God, this is what I've done for you. I'm terrified that a lot of people that I know and love are going to stand before God one day and they're going to hear, depart from me for I never knew you. I don't want that for the people that I love. I don't want that for anybody in this room. Our only hope when we stand before God is that we have a strong defender who took on the punishment that we bought for ourselves and who replaces our filthy robe of self-righteousness with his pure vestments. 
Joshua never got the chance to defend himself, not because his accuser nailed him to the wall, as he rightly could have, but because at just the right moment, the judge steps up and proves that he is actually the defendant's advocate, right? There was a severe conflict of interest going on here, but that's a good thing for us, right? Satan was ready to light him up and watch him burn, but what does Jesus do? He speaks up, and he turns Satan's rebuke right back on his own head. In verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Jesus let him have it, right? Don't you love that every time we see Jesus and Satan in the Bible, Jesus is always putting the smack down on Satan? That's awesome. God said way back in the Garden of Eden, that the serpent would bite his heel, but he would crush his head, right? And Jesus does it every time. Here he is again. Jesus put the gabosh on him again because it's not about Satan having the wrong claims. Satan was absolutely right in his claims against our unrighteousness. But Jesus said, I chose these people. These are my people. What belongs to God, Satan has no business overtaking God takes the broken shattered people and makes them part of his mosaic masterpiece that's what he does that's our God that's what he does for us he chose each of his children from Abraham and Isaac to Peter and James and John and most importantly he chose you he chose individual you unique you wonderful and wicked you he chose you and he paid a very high price for you It's not because he saw something special in you. It's not because he said, I want to take the gamble on this one. I think I can turn something around. It's not because he saw the diamond in the rough. It's because he loves you. It's part of his character to take broken things, to redeem those that are in the guttermost, and to save them to the uttermost. That's what our God does. He said, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Israel was close to being burned up in God's wrath. But he plucked them out of the fire at just the right moment. Maybe some of you feel like he's got you in the fire right now. Maybe you feel like you're one ember away from ash. The heat is on. Maybe you feel the spiritual warfare in your life. You feel that Satan, that enemy, that oppressor breathing down the back of your neck. But take heart. It's just because you're a high-value target. Satan wants to take down those that God wants to use the most, but he can't. He's on a leash. We are chosen and we are paid for. God will not let you be consumed. He may be lovingly and carefully refining you in the refiner's fire. Yes, the wood, hay, and stubble of our life will be burned away. He will scoop off the dross. But what's left is, is a beautiful, purified, perfected Christian standing before the Lord one day, casting all of our crowns at his feet. He who has begun a good work is faithful to complete it. Notice he never says that Satan is wrong. He never attempts uh, to lower the bar for us. He never accepts sin. He never says, it's just a little poop. That'll be all right. Just come on in. All sin has to be paid for, even what we call small sins. All the good works in the world can't blot out a single sin. That's just not how it works. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But as I said, for 70 years, that process, 
had gone undone. And it left Joshua covered in filth that even Ajax couldn't cut. He was filthy and he needed a whole new wardrobe. And that's what Jesus does. He refitted Joshua with a whole new wardrobe. My second point. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, that's Zechariah, he's speaking up. He's so excited about this vision, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. He's like, hey, let him, let him put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Jesus removes those filthy garments, and he gives him a new robe, pure and white, pure vestments. Where did this robe come from? I believe it came from Jesus. It was his robe. Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life. It's his righteousness. He earned it by living a spotless life that we could not possibly live. The life that the high priest, that all of us were held accountable to under the law but we're totally incapable. But this robe was made filthy. This robe became the blackest, the dirtiest, the most repugnant, the most disgusting thing that ever existed in the history of mankind when Jesus took on the sin of all mankind upon himself. So how did it get so clean? It was washed with the blood of the sinless, spotless lamb. All the sacrifices in the temple, all the bulls and lambs and doves whose blood rolled like rivers from the temple for centuries could never wash away the stain of our sin. But the blood of the Savior, the blood of the Lamb, cleansed us from all of our sin. And He gave us those pure vestments that can never be soiled again. That brings me to my third point. Joshua is commissioned to build God's kingdom. He was acquitted, he was refitted, and now he was commissioned. He has a job to do. In verse 6, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access amongst those who are standing here. So Josh got the job, right? He's the HPIC, the head priest in charge. But God gave you a job to do too. When God saves us, when Jesus gives us his robe of righteousness, it comes with a job. Jesus fulfilled the role of high priest for us. Zechariah was just I'm sorry, Joshua was just foreshadowing what Jesus did. He is the ultimate high priest. But in the same way that Joshua was to represent Jesus, we are to represent Jesus as a reflection of him as a high priest. What is our job? Is to build his kingdom here on earth. That's what Joshua had to do. That's what we had to do. To rule in his name and with his authority. So let me ask you, are you ruling? Are you building God's kingdom today? Or are you satisfied with a wardrobe change? 
What are you doing to build God's kingdom in your life, to live up to this calling? Warming a pew ain't it. Reposting some spiritual message on Facebook ain't it. Praying, dear Lord, please help me to make it to next payday. That's not it. If that's your contribution, then God wants you to wake up. He's got something so much bigger for you. He's got something amazing, a mission that he's made specifically for you. He made you for that mission, something only you can do. You say, well, missions isn't my personality. Come on. I'm terrified. I'm no Billy Graham. You know, I'm terrified to go next door and ask my neighbor for a cup of sugar, let alone proselyze them. Listen, nobody is as awkward and introverted as I am, okay? I take my kids to Pokemon Club on Thursday nights, and I'm a wallflower hiding in the corner in that crowd. That can tell you how, how terrified I am of talking to strangers. But God teaches us to do things that we can't do in our own righteousness. It's through His Spirit that He enables us to do what only He can do to live out this calling, to live up to this commission. Listen, you don't have to have David Lyle's charisma to go out and build God's kingdom, to share the love of Christ. He's called each of us to build a different part of the wall. You know, you can be an IT wonderkin to the glory of the Lord. You can be a, a homemaker taking care of children, be they seven months or 72 years old. You can do that as unto the Lord. You can caffeinate uh, your, your fellow Christians as unto the Lord. Thank you, Joel. There are so many ways that you can use the talents, the individual unique gifts that God has given you to build God's kingdom here on earth. We have no excuses. We have every tool required to do the job. It may be exhausting. It may be thankless. I understand. It's okay. The more you have to go to God every day and exhaustedly pump the 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 well of his inexhaustible grace and strength, the more that, are, that becomes a crown that we can cast at his feet one day. Jesus said, you have the right of access among those who are standing here. He says, we have direct access to the throne room of God. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. That's John 14, 13 through 14. Because we've been cleansed, forgiven, and gifted with God's righteousness and because we've been charged with this holy duty to build God's kingdom, we have access to Daddy's checkbook. He'll give us the tools we need. He never gives us a calling without equipping us for what he's called us to do. Jesus solemnly assured Joshua, it says, thus says the Lord. This is a promise. You can count on it. It's like money in the bank. Jesus is saying, you are mine, and I'm calling you with my authority to go out and rule in my name. Sanballat can't question it. Satan can't dispute it. King Cyrus can't stop this. God is doing something that only he can accomplish and nobody can stand in his way. He says, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, though, there is a condition there. Now, note, there is no condition to our salvation. Never. 
when God has put his robe of righteousness on you, nothing can take that away. We cannot forfeit our salvation, but we can forfeit our mission, our testimony. We can forfeit our ability to serve God in his authority if we're not walking in God's ways. So don't be surprised if you're not following in his ways if you don't feel the storerooms of heaven poured out on you. Don't expect God to put the wind in your sails if your ship is headed to Tarshish like Jonah was. That's not how it works. But if we're following in his ways, then he will give us the strength to do what he's called us to do. He gave us access to his throne room. We can go directly to God. You know, before Jesus, only the high priest had that kind of access. And only one day a year. But the Bible says that the crucifixion, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil that was separating the Holy of Holies from everybody else, it was torn from top to bottom. And that symbolizes the access that we have to God's throne room through Jesus. My last point is that God provides a great comfort to Joshua and to us by pointing out to us the ultimate perfecter of the job that we can't complete. In verse 8, it says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. They are a foreshadowing of what's to come. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. He says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This term, the branch, is used several times throughout the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah. In Jeremiah 23, 5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In Isaiah 4, 2, it says, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It's also mentioned in Jeremiah 33 and Isaiah 11. This term, the branch, carries the connotation that the tree, that is Israel, has been cut down, that the line of David has been cut off. But it's like when you sit through 18 minutes of credits at the end of a movie, and they've got that little teaser, that little spoiler to tell you that there's a sequel coming, a little branch will sprout up from that stump. And that branch, spoiler alert, will turn into a sprawling tree of life that the whole earth will sit under in peace and flourish one day. In verse 9 it says, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, what? this is a little wild, what stone? What's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, Psalm 118, 22. And that's referred to several times throughout the New Testament. Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, 1 Peter 2, Acts 4. That's an important verse. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly stone, 
cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. This cornerstone is the firm foundation on which everything that matters and the only things that will stand are built on. Joshua was tasked with revitalizing the temple rebuild project. And this was a reminder to him that that temple and all of their hopes were to be built on this cornerstone, the coming Messiah. It talks about seven eyes on this stone. That's a weird-looking stone. But this is a symbol. Eyes were always a symbol of wisdom or knowledge or understanding in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, seven is the number of perfection or completion. So this is just a fancy way of saying that this stone, this Messiah, will be all-knowing, all-wise, says, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. What does it mean, I will engrave its, its inscription? What does it mean to engrave? It means to dig into, right? To pierce, to carve. So when was the Messiah engraved? He was engraved, he was cut into at the crucifixion, right? His hands, his feet, they were nailed into. His brow was engraved with the thorns of a crown, His side was engraved with the spear. When Jesus arose from the dead and he showed himself to his, apostles, his, his disciples, they asked to see the engravings in his hands and in his side. I've heard it said that the only man-made things in heaven are Jesus' scars. He was engraved for us. says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That day has come. It had not come for Joshua, for Zechariah. They were looking forward to that day. But for us, that day has come. They had to wait. We don't have to wait. That's the day that we call Good Friday. When all of the iniquity of all man's sin, all of our filth and unrighteousness was poured out onto Jesus, the sinless, spotless lamb. He became the propitiation for our sins and God poured all of his wrath that we earned onto his son. Today, we can be washed. We can be acquitted of our sin. We can be refitted with Christ's righteousness. We have been commissioned to a great job that only we can do only through God's Holy Spirit living out through us. And we can take comfort that Jesus has completed the work that we can't possibly do on our own. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And that's exactly what I want to do today. I want to invite you to come sit under this vine with me to come enjoy a little piece of paradise with me. We don't have to wait for the next life. You can have his life right now. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. He is the vine and we are the branches. It's through him that we're able to bear fruit, to live out this great calling that he's given to us. We have no fear of death. We have no fear of judgment. We can be washed with the blood of the lamb. And if you haven't done that, Would you consider it today? 
We're here to celebrate these children who understood what it meant to give their sin up to God, to be cleansed and forgiven. You can do the same thing if you've not already done that. Today is the day of salvation. Don't show up at the day of judgment with a sack of diapers as your righteousness. It won't get you in. It's only through Christ's complete work on the cross that we can be forgiven of our sins. If you've already been purified, praise God. When you watch these kids get baptized, reflect on your own salvation and on how God has done the same thing for you. And recommit yourself to the calling, the commissioning that he's given to you. Ask yourself, am I walking in his ways? Am I leveraging the access to his throne room that he's given me? Am I building his kingdom, ruling in his name? Are you still holding on to your own self-righteousness and doing the best you can with what you've got? Give it up. He wants so much more for you than that. The best you've got will never be good enough. Maybe he's got you in the refiner's fire like the Israelites were. But be encouraged. He will not permit his people to be overcome by the enemy. He will pluck the branch out before it is consumed. It's all part of his great process for redemption. Lord, thank you for the amazing gift of redemption, for the high price that you paid for us. Thank you for taking our sin, our filth away from us, for putting your robes of righteousness around us, God, we're so excited to celebrate the new life that you have given to these children, to reflect and remember and praise you for the new life that you've given us. But I pray, God, that if there's anybody under the sound of my voice who has not experienced that transformation, that radical rebirth, that today would be the day of salvation. It's not about us. It's not about saying the right things or doing the right things. You did it all. We have only to surrender to you. Would today be that day, God? Thank you for the complete work that you've done. Thank you for this gospel message of hope. Lord, would it light us up to go out and to fulfill your great commission for our life? We ask it all in the high and holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.